Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week. Going to guide you gently through another show. And we have a terrific guest this week. We've got David Lowy, who's the Senior Director of Marketing and Sales at Atari VCS and Video Games. David, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you. Good to have you on board. And we've got my usual co-host, Frank Washkirk, Associate Editor at uh, PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Good to meet you, David. Good to meet you. Yeah, so we're going to chat to David, then we'll get into some news stories this week. Loads of people moves this week, so we'll, we'll go through a, a bunch of them. Rudafin has acquired Peppercom. Uh, we'll talk about the Grammys and the latest situation with the uh, Russian atrocities in Ukraine, which we saw graphic images of over the weekend, horrible, horrible um images coming out of there and uh, we interviewed a Ukrainian PR professional this week so we'll talk a little bit about that but David let's start with you it's Atari it's difficult to believe this because I'm a you know of the generation that grew up with Atari but 50th anniversary this year so um, first of all congratulations but how are you marking that and how does that feel to be a a gaming uh, brand that's 50 years old? It's interesting it's it is a major milestone and we are not, not only is it the 50th anniversary of Atari, just it becomes the 50th anniversary of video games. Atari was really the first company that, that um, turned, you know, what was, a, you know, some small efforts into a, into a major business and sort of set the industry forward. Um, so, you know, we're marking, we're marking our anniversary, but we're also marking the anniversary of video games, which is, you know, such a, massive phenomenon globally right now it's definitely an interesting time and and atari is one of those brands that's really recognized and well known across the globe although you know for younger generations they're drawn to the fuji logo they're drawn to the brand you see the atari logo on t-shirts that baristas are wearing at coffee shops but one of the interesting challenges and opportunities we have is a lot of those people don't really know why they like Atari, you know, because they, they, unlike you and I, didn't grow up with the brand and didn't interact with the, the hardware and the software. So uh, it's 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 an interesting interesting opportunity for us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I remember, I I never sort of trained on, I guess, as a gamer, but I Tetris, Space Invaders, Pong, and all those sort of things were they were about my level, you know, and I probably probably still are now. Gaming market has, in, has obviously evolved tremendously, but you're right, it really is an iconic brand, isn't it? So how do you go about telling that story and and establishing that narrative with that new generation without sort of losing your your core audience as well? You know, your, that legacy is a, a great thing to have, isn't it? Yeah, so much of what we're doing is telling the story through, through, through doing. Really, um, we're we're uh, in many ways. It is a fifty-year-old brand, but the company is almost structured right now like a, a young company, like a start a startup. We have a new CEO, and we um, we recently pivoted. We had been over the last few years really doing mostly free-to-play mobile games. And relying also on our, our strong licensing business, and over the last year we've we've shifted our focus 
to start producing more games for PC and console and making new games, which is something that Atari hasn't been known for in recent years. So it's, it's, it's a real shift. So a lot of what we're doing, we have a lot of games releasing this year, almost 15, which for a gaming company is a, is a very large number of games. So that gives us an opportunity to talk to the media and talk to consumers and show up very frequently. We also have some milestone, you know, or, or what I call tentpole licensing collaborations. Um, so we just a few weeks ago did a, um, a collab with Cariuma, which is a sustainable footwear brand out of Brazil that has gone really, really well, a high and premium brand. And we've got two other major licensing partnerships that will be announced later this year and will drop this year that are that are very large in scale. So we're kind of telling our story through all of these product launches and, and collaborations largely. Over and above that, though, we have been doing um, a number of interviews with, with gaming and technology outlets about, you know, about the 50th anniversary, what it means, what our vision is, and what our, you know, how we're approaching rebuilding Atari into a company that's going to, you know, easily last for another 50 years. Um, and as I said, because of this alignment between Atari's 50th anniversary and what it mean, means as a event for the gaming industry, there's a lot of people who are interested in having that conversation with us. Yeah, I bet they are. And, and we should emphasize that your job title is Senior Director of Marketing and Sales, but comms is very much part of that. And you had, a, I think, around 18 years at Fleischmann Hillard, for example. So you're very much coming from that comms background. And uh, this is meat and drink to you. For those who don't sort of know the gaming world well, tell us what goes into a game. You know, how long does it take to to actually put one together, and what's the process of telling that story? And, and give us a give us an idea of the scale of the gaming industry because it's 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 possibly not well known how big it is, is it? And how, what a massive contributor it is to the global economy. <laughs> it's sort of funny. It's it's absurdly large. Um, you know, two of the industries. Uh, big in events happened over the last couple of months. One is a relatively small event called Dice, uh, where a lot of you know leaders come together, um, and it sort of kicks off what I'd call the deal flow season. And then it's followed up by GDC, which is a major event held every year in San Francisco. Both events were physical this year, which was a big change over recent times. GDC was smaller than it's been in the past, but still, you know. It, it attracts tens of thousands of people from the gaming industry worldwide, and they, you end up being in meetings all day long, 45-minute meetings, do the 12 of them in a day. It's, it's full on. There's so much activity in the gaming industry and so much more going on, so much more money coming into the industry because a lot of the major social apps and a lot of the major streaming services are all trying to get into gaming because it's it's a it's a huge opportunity for them to drive um, uh, awareness, engagement, um, and uh, reach into a younger demographic. Um, so, you know, it feels like everybody's not only is gaming large, but everybody seems to be hurting into the space. In terms of what goes into creating a game, it really varies by the size of the game, right? So, smaller games might get done in six months. They might uh, get done in nine months. Larger games that have multi-million dollar budgets could take 18 months to a couple of years to develop. Different studios will have their own sweet spot. Atari doesn't have an internal studio. We actually work with indie independent studios from around the world. And our sweet spot for game development right now is probably between nine and 18 months. 
do these developers are they kind of superstars in the industry do they have like followings and you know uh, they're, they're almost like influencers well yeah you're 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 tapping into the reality of marketing communications and gaming right now in that um like many other segments that you know people want to know who's behind the game um and also for atari we want to work with the best studios whether or not they're established or they're up and coming so including the studios and how we communicate about the games is it's important to the players because they want to know um, and it's also important to marketing and, and communications because we want to be seen as a really good partner for these indie studios we want to put them forward um, uh, because they are uh, great spokespeople for the for the content they're creating um, and but it, it's also what the market wants right yeah. Um, it's it's similar to it's not quite like book publishing where if you talk to authors they'll say it's hard to get a book deal unless you're a list or um, you can show up and say I already have a hundred thousand followers um, you can still work with studios that don't have a big following but clearly have the creative chops and then you we work with them to help them contribute to the marketing communications of the title and 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 learn to develop those you know those muscles and skills have you seen we've we've been covering a bunch of campaigns over the last you know three or four years where brands are getting involved in games and they're sort of uh, you know wendy's is, in particular has done quite a few of these some of those can be organic where they just sort of get involved in the game but some are actually built into the games do you find is that something you're seeing uh, is that a trend that we're going to see more of do you, and are there any specific examples that stand out to you you know there are lots of, of brands that do want to try and find a way to show up in a game whether or not it's um and, and many mobile games do have you know advertising in them although what i find is that the that other mobile games tend to dominate that advertising and that the brands who are advertising um whether it's a car or anything else sort of feel like odd outliers to me often but yeah that is a big part of the space um you also see brands trying to integrate into um, console games, whether it's you know GTA or any of these other games that are set in a more modern environment, where they can have you know licensed car models or billboards or 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 who knows. There's lots of different ways that brands are trying to get into games in the same way that that they'd have a group getting their brand placed in in films, and it is part of how some of the larger games uh, contribute to their development uh, funds, and it is a revenue of exposure, but like anything else it, 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 it a lot of the efficacy base is based on how well it's done there are also games that uh, companies that sort of create what i call almost like vanity video games around their brand those games tend to not have they tend to be relatively low budget um and so they tend to have a very short shelf life and and a limited i'd say sort of a limited appeal Every once in a while, somebody will strike gold, but it's kind of like if you remember back in the day when everybody would say, "We need to create a viral video," and you know, yeah, 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 it's not it's not something that's easy to plan. Gaming's pretty similar, unless you're unless you're really in it, uh, it's it's much easier to miss than to hit. So, you know, my advice to a to a brand that really wanted to get into gaming would be to to almost do what we do and 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 team up with a really creative studio and let them. Um, let them drive a lot of where the creative's going so that they end up with a good product. Yeah, build something organic. 
Um, do you see the metaverse changing gaming? I mean, we've we've covered things like Rec Room and things like that. Is that how how's Atari playing in that world, or, or how do you see that influencing the future of gaming? So it, it's a really interesting and controversial topic within the gaming industry right now. Um, it, it it the boat will slowly turn, but there's a very strong pro blockchain metaverse camp, and there's a there's a very very uh, uh, strong sort of countercurrent to that, which is which is normal. Atari was a was a very early mover into the metaverse. We, we happen to own a lot of virtual land. We we have uh, we have a, a lot of programming going on in the sandbox and Decentraland and, and other metaverses, and it's an area where we are doing game development. I do think it. I don't know how much it's going to change gaming in the near term, but it's certainly going to create an extension of gaming, right? So in the same way that, you know, Roblox begat Minecraft became a massive phenomenon, you're going to see um, a migration of players into into these metaverse experiences that are blockchain-based. I, I think what we're seeing now is is very early days, and some might say a little rudimentary, even though there's some very cool stuff out there. But I think it's going to change a lot over the next couple of years. And what what metaverse means three years from now is going to be very different from what it means right now. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it's what I will say is it's definitely having a big impact on the market because so many people are wanting to invest in blockchain gaming that there's a lot of money coming into this to, to, to the industry. And it's going to naturally pull some developers into that space. And you're going to have... Uh, a bit of a competition over uh, over man hours within the industry in terms of where those where those development hours are getting put. Are they getting put into traditional games, or are they going to be put into uh, into metaverse? Yeah, yeah. And just finally, how how do you see the next? You, you mentioned getting back together in person with people, which must have been good after a, you know a couple of years. How do you see the what the rest of the year panning out and the rest of your fiftieth anniversary? What you got in store? Um. There, as I said, we've got a lot of sort of uh, of announcements and, and and new products and partnerships coming into play. We have been attending industry events, and I'm very excited that some of the consumer events are coming up. So the beginning of the year is usually, you know, B2B events, but some of the B2C events start happening uh, next month and carry over the heavy summer season. And then there's some that happen in the early fall. Very much looking forward to those because. Those face-to-face interactions with consumers are are they're just really important. I also think they're um, you know re, they're energizing, they're revitalizing. Yeah. I think there's there's something about you know that intense personal interaction with with players and and hearing what they're excited about um, that recharges your batteries and 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 makes you think uh, you know think a little more creatively and a little smarter about what you're going to do next. Um, there is going to be, you know, a lot of excitement about Atari's 50th. Um, a lot of these events, there are a little, you know, there are little Atari moments in them. But, uh, but yeah, no, that that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Um, and yeah. also getting a chance just to, since so much of our activity is releasing new games, getting an opportunity to talk with consumers and see how they feel about them. Yeah, it's, it's great across the board, isn't it, to get back in person. We, we, we're never going to take that for granted again think about oh no not another conference or whatever so uh, yeah it's good to see and congrats on the 50th and uh, looking forward to seeing how the how the year pans out for you on the move frank loads of people stories this week you know it's been a theme of the year but 
They're all clustered together this week, haven't they? Give us a quick run through them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this is the big topic on everybody's uh, mind here, isn't it? It's just people moving company to company, agency to agency. And we have a ton of them this week. It's really high profile ones. So let's start in the tech sector. There's a change at the top of the comms department at HP as Karen Kahn is stepping aside. And she is going to be replaced later this summer by Stella Lowe, who is well known in the tech sector and in the industry at large as the former communications head at Apple. So she is going to be joining HP later this summer. Now, speaking of HP, their former global head of brand activation, Vanessa Yanez, is joining the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. You know, definitely switching industries here as she moves from tech over to the Federal Reserve Bank. She started in the role on Monday. Yeah, that's so, interesting stuff, isn't it? Um, yeah. New era at HP, by the sounds of it. And Stella Lowe also was at Cisco, but she didn't last that long at Apple, did she? So it'll be interesting no, to see what she does at HP. Few more for you. McDonald's has brought on Sandy Rodriguez as its VP of U.S. Communications. She's joining at the start of May, reporting up to Michael Gonda, the SVP and Chief Communications Officer at McDonald's. BCW has brought on Mary Corcoran as president of North America, also at the beginning of next month. She's going to be responsible for North American business growth, senior client counsel, talent acquisition, development, and retention. She was previously the chief client officer at Real Chemistry. Just this morning, or actually overnight, news broke that Disney has brought on the former White House and longtime um, political aide, Christina Schack, to its team. Now, now Disney, of course, the, the bigger context here is that they're in this, this messaging war with Ron DeSantis, Florida's governor, over what's widely known as the don't say gay law in Florida. And, you know, after uh, Disney had sort of a slower than expected response, to this bill. They did respond eventually and say they were going to work to repeal parts of it. DeSantis has responded by saying that they can repeal like the 55-year-old special district, which if you've ever been to Disney World, you know is is kind of evident when you're around Disney World that it's like this little self-governing place. Uh, And he's throwing around that that could be repealed. So Disney brought on Shake earlier this month. She most recently was working in the Biden administration, heading their COVID-19 vaccine education efforts as counselor to the Secretary for Strategic Communications in the Department of Health and Human Services. One more that just broke today, too, is Marina Mar Communications has uh, appointed Olga Fleming as a global president of Marina Mar Communications and its specialist healthcare agency, RX Mosaic. That's effective immediately. She is taking on that role from Rama Vassin, who was appointed last summer, and Vassin is leaving for a different role in the digital and tech innovation sector, and we'll follow up with her later on about what that role is. And here's maybe the biggest people move in the sector for the whole week, is that the White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, is planning to leave the Biden administration next month, according to numerous reports, and is in exclusive negotiations with MSNBC to join the network, host a talk show on the Peacock Network. Important to say, she's she's evidently not in a candidate to replace Rachel Maddow at the 9 p.m. slot. And a lot of uh, a lot of questions about who's going to move into that time slot. It looks like it won't be Saki, but she is looking to step down from the White House podium next month, according to a lot of reports. How will we reflect on her tenure, Frank, uh, 18 months in the role? And uh, some would say brought a sense of normality back to the White House press dais. That's exactly it, isn't it? And I... Um... 
I think you can't overstate that enough in that, you know, um, President Trump's last press secretary was was Kayleigh McEnany and, and you know, was known for being in the uh, being in the briefing room and just launching these broadsides against reporters and against, you know, the media in general. And of course, you know, we, we had all these examples of Trump himself and Trump administration officials calling reporters and calling members of the media, you know, enemies of the enemies of the people, uh, you know, real like Maoist language. And so um, she was, uh, you know, Saki really was a return to normal. And I remember when we were reporting on her first few days in the job, uh, a lot of people would just say she was a breath of fresh air. I, I think that she, one way you can gauge how successful she was, I, I don't think she was kind of lampooned every day by political enemies or people on the right or even the far right for for making gaffes or for being unclear or, or other things. I think she she was very straightforward with the messaging. I think she was she was an asset to the Biden administration. She still is. She's still there. Um, and and she was very calm, contained. And I, I think there are definitely fans of hers that will remember her sparring with Peter Ducey from uh, from Fox yes. News uh, <laughs> quite a bit as well, uh, which can be entertaining at times. So um, she yeah, didn't get her own spot on uh, SNL like Sean Spicer either. And uh, and unlike another, another of Biden's uh, President Trump's press secretaries just never did any press conferences. David, it's a high profile role, isn't it? It's probably the most high profile communications role in the world. What was your take on it? You know, I really thought that, um, well, first of all, it was mission critical that they had somebody competent in there in part because of the, uh, of what had happened prior, right? It was a real signal. Um, and, and, you know, I'd never heard of her before and became an immediate, you said there are a lot of fans of her, hers. I am one of them. I thought she was amazing. Her professionalism and, and, and it was clear that she was, you know, she's whip smart. She's a is a very smart um, individual. Handles herself so well um, that um, she brought a lot of stability to something that was chaotic. And to your point, it's kind of hard to lampoon stability and professionalism, which is probably why she's not on SNL quite as much as uh, her predecessors. And then this is it's an interesting moment for the Biden administration because. Um, because they, I, I don't think they want to get into um, a revolving door situation with this role, and and whoever is picked next is, it's going to be compared to Gensaki, and it's it's going to be interesting. It's, uh, I think they've got an important staffing decision here. Yeah, I agree. I I, I really like Karine Jean Pierre, who's her deputy, who stepped up when. Um... Saki's been out quite often with COVID, actually. Uh, she seems to have had it two or three times. And then even Karine Jean-Pierre got COVID as well. So they had the third option come in, who was the, um, I think... Kate Bedingfield. Yeah, that's right. And she did pretty yeah. well, too. Um, yeah. But I agree with you. I think it's... An, I like Karine Jean-Pierre. She's got her own style, but she's she's uh, very smart, too. And, uh, yeah, and before we get sort of loads of brickbats, uh, we know there are people who hate Jen Psaki's guts, and uh, <laughs> some of them probably listen to this show as well. So we're aware that she's not universally loved. But uh, in general, I think that they, they, they ran a professional operation and they had press conferences every day. And it's important for the government, to, especially at times like this, to be communicating with the media and with, hence, the, the general public so yeah what about the wider thing uh david about you know all these people moves is that is it the great resignation that people changing jobs is that the same in the gaming industry is has there been loads of turnover there as well with with talent is it at a premium 
Very much so. It's, you know, there will be a session at every single industry conference about the great yeah. resignation and, and, and retaining and finding talent. In certain markets like Montreal, for example, you know, you'll have one of the large brands go in and suddenly soak up four or 500 people over a series of months. Um, it, it, it has been very disruptive. It's not necessarily that um, people are leaving the industry. It's just that there's a natural amount of movement and churn, and it's just been exacerbated by two things. One, growth with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of growth in the industry. Companies getting bigger, new companies forming. There's a lot of competition, but also, you know, what we all know is that there's um, people are pop popping their head up during the pandemic and looking around and there's a lot more remote roles and and uh, there are a lot of opportunities for people to sort of shift their their lifestyle. So yeah, it's definitely an, an issue in the game. Yeah, and I mean, in, in New York, you've got TikTok, you've got Google, you've got Facebook, you know, all hiring like hundreds of people as well, soaking people up too. So yeah, talent wars are, are definitely a thing. Uh, they were pre-pandemic, but they are even more now, so for sure. Frank, another interesting story. Ruda Finn has acquired uh, an agency, an interesting agency as well. Yes, they have. Ruderfin has acquired Peppercom. Ruderfin said that uh, they were attracted to Peppercom's change agent training system, which uses humor to connect with stakeholders, according to Kathy Bloomgarden, the longtime CEO of Ruderfin. Peppercom has also created a number of services over the years, such as the sentient mapping tool, Mindset AI, Content Equity, Creative Engine, and the Crisis Preparedness Training, Crisis RX. Founded by Steve Cody in 1995. So they are moving under the Ruder Finn umbrella. Yes, I believe named after Mr. Cody's dog back in the day. So, uh, yeah, and uh, nice deal for him. He's always been a great fan of PR Week. So uh, congratulations to him and uh, wish him well and his new uh, home at Ruder Finn. Um, let's talk about the Grammys, Frank. We, it was a bit... You know, the week after the main event, wasn't it, with the yeah. shenanigans around the Oscars? And I guess they wanted <laughs> to uh, they wanted to uh, make sure that they maybe it was just a little less dramatic. It, it was a lot less dramatic. Um, I, I don't know. I it was almost inevitably disappointing, and I hate to say it because it's you know look, there's a lot of talented musicians out there, and it's good to see some of them get to do. But it, it, one thing that really kind of annoys me about this is is that I think so much of the coverage in the week after this event has gone to uh, you know, Louis C.K and whether or not he should have been eligible for that comedy award after all of the accusations against him. And, you know, like, look, he's apologized for that. You know, I, I think that has kind of sucked a lot of the air out of the room. And that's disappointing because there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great artists out there who this is a, a lifetime moment for. And, you know, that should be the thing that more people remember, I think. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it was a bit curious seeing uh, Louis C.K. win an award. But in general, I thought the show was... Uh, I thought it was, was a good show. Nice vibe in the room, wasn't it? Everyone was, yeah, it was. very friendly and it was <laughs> a, bit, a bit friendlier than the week before. Yeah. Um, David, you know, gaming's a big part of the entertainment industry, isn't it? Um, we've seen, like, I mean, gaming has been accused of sort of bro culture. There was the sort of Activision Blizzard situation with, um, you know, and this led to them potentially being acquired by Microsoft. Do you, is there a culture problem in the gaming world? You know, and has uh, is, is that been exhibited? Does that need to change? Where Where is the industry at on things like that? You know, it's a work in progress. It's definitely a work in progress, but it is um, 
what I will say after going through the last couple of years of, of high profile turbulence that you do see focused effort um, to, you know, collectively get our act in, you know, our act together. Um, you, you know, there is definitely a, a, a strong current in the industry that is, is a positive one. Um, and it, it kind of manifests in a, in, in a number of different ways. Um, and I, you know, I, I think gratefully we're seeing fewer negative headlines, but I, you know, that's, that's not evidence of change, right? Um, it, it's, it's the stories that, you know, that you don't see that, um, yeah. that become the important ones. So I do think that, um, I do think that, you know, it, it, gaming, it, you know, gaming has got a culture uh, within the industry. There's also a, a culture within the players, right? You know, which is, which is, you know, has its own, has its own interesting issues and, and, and reflects some of the stuff that you see in the industry as well. So um, I do think it's a moving target and, uh, and something to keep an eye on. Um, but, um, but yeah, as, as gaming becomes more and more mass culture and, you know, shows up everywhere with, with, you know, everyone playing as they grow up, um, it's going to just start to um, reflect back all the issues that you have in society. Um, and as long as, you know, mar as long as markets are moving in the right direction and people are moving in the right direction, I think, uh, I think gaming will move in the, mar in the right direction as well. But it, it is interesting. You definitely have to keep your eye on, uh, on certain, certain things, yeah. not to get into specifics. For sure, there's a whole show on, in that one, which we probably will we'll, we'll leave for another time. Um, all right, Frank, just to finish, we had an interview this week with um, Miroslava Gribova, who's, uh, who works for a Ukrainian PR firm called Be It. And it was really, it was a very emotional interview to do, actually. Um, and, and just to get the stories, you know, of what the reality is of, of people, citizens, but people, people working in the PR profession. And we've also done a campaign case study, haven't we, of some of the work that that agency was doing? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we, we have a lot of really interesting coverage uh, on the war in Ukraine this week. You've mentioned your interview. We have a case study this week on one of the really, I, I think, really spot on interesting campaigns that have emerged in response to this war. And um, and, and it's happening in Ukraine. And, and it really, it, I'd encourage everybody to read it or, or listen to the interview just because it really shows you just how dire uh, that situation is for, for the people in Ukraine. And I mean, it really, it really truly is life or death. Yes, and there's a very... Yes, yeah, it's a weekend, you know, terrible. Yeah, and and I would say it's an extremely small silver lining, um, but it is good in 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 like I said, there there are much bigger things here, but it is good in a very small way to see people who are marketers, people who are PR pros, apply their skills usefully, even in such a horrible situation like that, and that and that's good to see. Another one I would point people to is uh, our colleague in the UK, James Hollowell talk to some PR pros over in, in, in Ukraine. And, and part of it is, from their perspective, is they want the rest of the world to to talk about this war in the right terms. And you stop, you know, you do see some people refer to it as, you know, a situation or in a crisis or, or you know, terms like that. And and it's not that. It's it's a war and it's an invasion. And look, I'd even go a step farther and say it's it's a genocide or it's the beginnings of a genocide. So I, I, I think it's, I agree with these folks. It is important to talk about what is happening there 
in the accurate way. Yeah, and Miroslava, I mean, she she fled to Germany with her daughter. Her husband is back still in Kiev, and um, as all men uh, are, are have to remain behind and are helping fight the war. And she was very insistent that, you know, she still wanted the work to be celebrated. So that that campaign that we've written up there is, a, is a, on the shortlist in the Global Awards, PRE Global Awards. And uh, Miroslava has called for business in, in terms of helping out. There was obviously the economic boycott, but she still wants help give give creative agencies and and firms some work keep giving them work to do because they're they're still functioning and that will help them too and it, it really it really is one one other way business can help david ukraine has been a, a center for developers as well hasn't it has this impacted the gaming industry in terms of uh, the developers who are working on gaming products it has. Um, it, it definitely has. There are. It, it, it's been interesting for the industry. There are a lot of developers in Russia. There are developers in Ukraine, and there are developers in the in the surrounding countries, uh, particularly the, in the markets that are that are bordering those countries, and also receiving um, a large influx of the refugees. So um, you're seeing a you're seeing a lot of interesting things play out. You're seeing a lot of studios um, turning their creative skills to you know. Uh, to raise funds for the people in Ukraine and for the uh, for the refugees that are coming into their into their countries, you are having some, you know we're seeing some very interesting conversations also around gaming content. There are certain uh, types of games that people are just not in the mood to make right now, um, yeah. particularly ones that have a, a lot of violence in them. It, it's definitely it's definitely hit the industry um, and. Uh, and it's interesting because we're an industry that, as I said before, has very long timelines, right? Eight, 16, 24, 36 month project timelines. And something like this happens in the middle and, and you know, some, you know, it, it, it forces a reaction that you can't necessarily take too quickly. But, um, and even being at the, you know, at GDC, uh, you know, some of the people I met with had family members in Ukraine that they had just gotten out and it was, it was you know, it was in the air. It was in the air. It's definitely impacting us all. Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, we, we wish our best to the people of Ukraine, to Miroslava and her colleagues, and uh, do check out that interview. It's uh, worth a watch. All right, listen, David, great to chat to you. Thanks for coming on, and uh, good luck with the, the rest of the 50th anniversary. Um, it's great to get a catch-up on Atari. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. And Frank, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, David. Thank you. Yeah, good to meet you. Just a couple of customer service announcements. We've got our Healthcare and Pharma Summit and Awards on May the 10th in New York City. I'm about getting back together, so we'll be there. I'll be in London in uh, May the 18th for the Global Awards that I just mentioned. So uh, hopefully see some of you there. Our Brand Film Awards, they will be virtual on May the 25th. And then don't forget our big conference in Chicago, PR Decoded, and the Purpose Awards on October 11th. And 12th, but that's all we got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.